losing pleasure in things that used to bring you pleasure. Activities you once enjoyed and you don't enjoy them anymore. People call you to go out with them. You don't accept or you don't want to accept. Um, weight loss or gain when you aren't trying to lose or gain. There aren't too many here who are trying to gain. Um, trouble sleeping, as you said. Loss of energy or fatigue. You might not realize you are depressed, but you have no energy or low energy, uh, which is uncharacteristic. Um, purposelessness and inability to, to sit still. Um, and certainly a person experiencing clinical depression uh, doesn't experience all of these, but we would look clinically at how many of these and how severe. Um, feeling worthless or guilty, difficulty concentrating, and of course the most extreme thoughts of death or suicide. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. My name is Fifi, and uh, some of you might have seen me around. Um, I like to help here with live groups, so if you haven't signed up, sign up. Um, but actually, I'm really excited about tonight because I am up here for the first time talking about something that um, sets my heart on fire, something I'm really passionate about, and that is mental health. Um, I am a marriage and family therapist trainee. And when I tell people what I do, they're usually the reaction is usually pretty good. Um, they 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 think it's cool, you know. They're like interested until they find out that I'm also a nurse, and then they're confused. They're like, "Why did you go from nursing to therapy?" But getting that question asked over and over again honestly has been really helpful because it has made me reflect on really like why did I choose this path? And I do not have one answer. I have several answers. So depending on the mood or the day or the people that that's asking, I answer with different things. The last one is because I'm a hopeless romantic and I want to help couples stay together and dating couples not screw up because they need it. So, um, But... Honestly, mental health is just so relevant and it's everywhere, it's in everything. Um, I have had the privilege of working at MEND for the past nine months as a therapist trainee. And MEND is an outpatient program that specializes in chronically ill patients. So we see people with diabetes, chronic um kidney disease, cancer, patients who have survived COVID, etc. And if there is one thing that I have learned in the past nine months that I cannot emphasize enough is that health is very integral. Um, we tend to compartmentalize health and put it into boxes. We put physical health here. We put mental health here. We put emotional health here. We put spiritual health here. And then we go and we think that we can work on spiritual health without taking care of any of this, and we're good. Or we think that we can eat healthy and exercise and have a really healthy physical body without taking care of your mental health, your emotional health, your spiritual health. And I promise you, it does not work like that. You cannot have a healthy physical body when you don't take care of these other things. Health is so integral. Um, I've seen at MED patients come in wheelchairs and leave walking. And I've seen patients come with blood sugar levels over the roof, leave with blood sugar levels within normal range. And that's only possible because we work um, towards health as a whole without um, splitting it as if they work independently from each other. So. Um, having said that, mental health is relevant, and you know, 
we mention it here at church sometimes, but we fail at talking, really, like talking about it. We mention it just enough to acknowledge that it exists, that the problems exist, but not enough to acknowledge that they exist right here within us. Um, sure, depression, anxiety, they're a thing, obviously, trauma, yeah, but not me or not the person next to me. I mean, they look pretty healthy to me. Um, but I am here to break it to you. Um, mental health issues are very real and they're closer than most of us like to acknowledge. And don't take my word for it. Um, let's actually talk numbers. Um, I found these stats. They were just posted, so they're very recent. One in five U.S. adults experience mental illness each year. That means that if there is 200 people in this room, 40 of us have experienced, are experiencing, or will experience mental illness this year, 2021. One in six U.S. youth aged seven, six to 17 experience a mental health disorder each year. 50% of all lifetime mental illness begins at age 14, and 75% by age 24. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34. I think that's us. Every 68 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted, and every nine minutes, that victim is a child. Let that sink in for a moment. One out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. That means that if there is 120 women here, 20 of us have or will be a victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. People with depression have a 40% higher risk of developing cardiovascular and metabolic diseases than the general population. Again, mental health, physical health, one thing. And lastly, the average delay between symptom onset and treatment is 11 years. That means that if I have a symptom today, most likely it won't be treated. I won't seek help or get help until an average of 11 years from now. That is way too long. So what do we do? We talk about it, we educate ourselves, we share what we know. Um, and I'm still in school, so I'm definitely not an expert, but we are lucky enough to have experts in the house tonight. Um, so I will invite the panelists to come up so you can talk about mental health and answer some questions. So I'm so excited to be with these people here tonight. Um, I will let them introduce themselves. So maybe Dr. Simpson, you can start. My name is Cheryl Simpson. I retired three years ago after teaching here at the university for 38 years. Um, I taught 43 years, the first five were junior high school. I loved it, but I couldn't have done that forever. <laughs> I was in the Department of Counseling and Family Sciences. I am a licensed educational psychologist. I developed the Master of Science in Counseling, the Clinical Counseling Program, and the School Counseling Credential Program here. And uh, now I am just living in this never, never land of retirement, <laughs> which is also wonderful. I'm just going to travel till I'm broke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Your example, people. There's one more thing that I would say, and that is, as I was listening to the singing, I did the math. I hadn't thought about it. I came here 50 years ago to get my master's degree in counseling. And I was going through a divorce, and I came here, and Loma Linda University and Southern California this place changed my life. Um, and I'm just so grateful that God kept his hand over my life all these years that I chose a career that I loved, 
but I was able to work at it until I chose to retire. Mm. And it's just a beautiful thing. Amen. Beautiful. My name is Dr. Julie Estrella, and I am, I've been here since I was about 12. <laughs> My mom went to medical school here when I was 12. And so um, that started our California adventure from Ohio. But um, I work as a licensed marriage and family therapist in Redlands with said mother, who is a psychiatrist. And um, in the it's been about 10 years, got married and went back to school the same year, around 30, had a bunch, had two kids, and <laughs> felt like a lot. <laughs> they still feel like a lot. That's a bunch. They're wonderful. And um, they've taught me a lot about life and relationships. I um, am really clear that there is uh, a lot of hurt that happens in relationships, and healing can happen in relationships. And so um, growing up in the church and um, watching my father leave the ministry, lots of family, lots of involvement over the years, there are way too many things we don't talk about freely. Yeah. Um, so I work with young professionals and couples around intimacy and sex and um, anxiety and how to really just embrace what is so yeah thank you hello i'm chion and i um i'm not as qualified as these two lovely women but i am a life coach a fitness coach um, i'm a director of one of the ministry out there called f5 challenge have you guys yeah. heard raise your hand if you heard of f5 challenge awesome so it's a fitness ministry and what i focus with my coaching is mental health. I emphasize and how much we could challenge our mind and how we could grow in life and in our character. And so, and then on the, on the side of that, I'm actually uh, a student, um, psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner student right now. So I'm currently training for that. And so I'm a nurse like Fifi. So, <laughs> but I am going the path of mental health. Love it. Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, so before we get deep, I guess, so we can just start with the general definition of mental health. Like, why is, why is that relevant? Why are we talking about it? Um, what is mental health? That's a really big question. <laughs> As if we weren't given the questions right. in advance. <laughs> mm. I've learned, for me, it's evolving into, um, I don't say mental health without wellness. I don't know why, it just feels like that's important to acknowledge too, that it's both. It's um, that our mental health is, when, for, for better lack of better words, when, when I, as a human, can feel um, internally, and it shows and connects outside, that, um, whatever my thoughts, my feelings, my body, that they're all somehow in some sort of alignment that works and I can function. And it isn't just surviving and getting by. I think mental health includes that um, beautiful opportunity to stretch and grow and thrive and explore your giftings as well, so. When we're really little, a parent's job, whether it's mother, father, foster parent, caregiver, is to teach a child to love himself or herself and to comfort and soothe oneself. Mm -hmm. And many of us weren't taught how to comfort and soothe ourselves. And mental health really runs aground when emotions hit, when circumstances hit us in the face and we don't know how to regulate our emotions. We don't know how to comfort and to soothe ourselves. And in many respects, sometimes that can be the work of a lifetime so that we don't always have to be propped up by somebody else and that we don't... I read a newspaper article this week about trauma dumping where you run into somebody and you dump your abuse from your childhood and you yeah. dump your, you know... Uh, stuff, which, you know, I mean, what are friends for? But on the other hand... <laughs> These are things 
that a mentally healthy person um, can regulate, certainly not perfectly and not 100% perfectly, but there are many people in your lives probably, or some, who have no idea how to regulate their emotions when they're angry, when they're sad, when they're excited, when they're anxious, and there was no role model to teach one how to comfort and soothe oneself and to love oneself. If you truly love yourself, as we are asked to love ourselves as we love others, um, love others as we love ourselves, then we would not be so anxious because we would forgive ourselves, which is all part of mental health, is also forgiving yourself. Mm. Yeah. I love that you touched anxiety and self-regulation. Um, actually, a couple of weeks ago, we did a poll in our Instagram, our Praxis Instagram page, mm -hmm. and we just asked an open-ended question to the, to, to the audience and asked them what mental health topics they would like to talk about. And the word that came up the most, I mean, a lot, mm -hmm. was anxiety. So let's talk a little bit about anxiety. What, what is anxiety? Let's hear from the gentleman. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of times anxiety is confused. Um, you know, there is a disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, but I think everyone goes through some sort of anxiety. It's sometimes maybe closely related to stress and I think there's times where you're, you know, you have those moments where, I mean, I, I probably felt it a little bit before I came up here, right? You, you kind of feel okay. that heart beating and you're thinking something's coming up and kind of have this little bit of like, oh, is it going to go well or not go well? But we also have to remember that that is a normal thing that your body does. It kind of prepares you for a moment that is to come. And it's a way your body is making you aware of your situation. And so that's something that I know I've realized in anxiety. But... There is a part of anxiety that we have to be concerned about, which is when it comes towards that disorder. And maybe one of you guys explain more about that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you said that, Shion, because I was thinking, you know, before coming up, my heart was beating fast, my palms were getting sweaty. And so if somebody asks me how you're feeling, I'd probably say I'm anxious. But where, where, does, where do we cross the line to, like, from just feeling stressed to maybe I need to seek help. Where is that line? What are the symptoms? I want to go back to the, the whole anxiety causing uh, first. Um, the, the whole definition of stress, you look at the subject of physics, um, where stress was used in the, in the field of physics, and you put enough pressure on a sheet of metal or on a stick or on a brick or anything, and you measure the stress, and it can break. And I remember um, I went into therapy after my husband George died, and I said to my therapist, I am broken. And he said, you're not broken. You're bent like a tree in the wind, but you're not broken. And many of us don't realize what resources we have within ourselves. And the, the whole business of anxiety, if you sit down and you know what the original diagnosis was before generalized anxiety disorder. I'm old enough to remember that before GAD was neurosis. And people were called neurotic. Well, anxiety is a whole lot better thing to be called than neurotic, <laughs> but anxiety replaced neurotic in terms of what the diagnosis is if, if you're you know, clinically anxious. What are you afraid is going to happen? That you're going to run out of money? Or often that you're going to look bad in somebody's eyes? Many times we're so afraid of what people will think, of how we think, how we live, how we dress, and we worry about so many more things that, than ever come to pass because we fantasize. And so back in my, when I was in therapy days, I would project onto people what I thought they were thinking about me. And I remember one day I was coming out of the parking lot and my boss was uncharacteristically uh, distant. You know, not, not this, hi, how you doing, Cheryl? And I thought, oh, what have I done? 
How many times do you go around there? What did I do? So I said to my therapist, you know, I mean, what did I do? One of the best things he ever taught me is really elementary. He could be treating me this way or behaving toward me this way because of this or this or this or this or something I can't even imagine. He could be treating me in a way because his wife yelled at him that morning, because his kid wouldn't do his homework the night before, and it has nothing to do with me. And how many times do you project onto somebody else thoughts and feelings that you, you think they have toward you or your work performance or your appearance, um, just who you are, when in fact that has nothing to do with it? So I did learn to use these fingers. It could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, all horrible things I could imagine. Or it could be something I can't even imagine going on in that other person's life. Dr. Julie, I saw you wanted to say something. Um, I like that, I love that example. Um, so for almost, until COVID, for about two years I was running anxiety groups with adults, mostly professionals and teachers. And something you asked about, like, how do you know where the line is? I, I've learned to ask questions like, so tell me what does an anxiety attack versus a panic attack mean to you? Because a lot of us feel um, our body respond because if there was a tiger in the room, we would naturally get scared and want to go and <gasps> do something. And in that song, somewhere in there, a lyric in their skit, I heard him say, if the body's keeping the score, that comes from a psychologist that really tuned in that our bodies do register when, when we're scared or we have something really challenging or overwhelming, even if it was to someone else relatively small. Um, but it was overwhelming for our system, our body will internalize and remember it. And it sets off like a protective part of our early childhood brain, like a danger alarm. And so for, for the best way I can think of anxiety is when um, that alarm starts going off all the time and you don't know why or you're getting really, you're always hypervigilant. So if this is, I don't know how to do this with a microphone, but this is what I do with my clients all the time. It's like, if we all have a window of tolerance where we can handle a, a lot of different things, feelings, thoughts, physical sensations, when we start to get to the top edge of our window of tolerance and we pop out, that's um, usually when we go into fight, flight, or flee, whatever your childhood experience <laughs> taught you works in your world. And so for, for most people with anxiety, it's this, sometimes it's not just actually something scaring anymore. They may see a flash of orange and think tiger, and it's a cone on the street. And they're going, oh, I don't know why that scared me so much. And most of us can then relax and, like she said, regulate and come back into our window of tolerance. But if you're having a tough time, if it's popping out, you're in clinic, you're sitting, I remember sitting um, in my PhD classes, every time I'd raise my hand, I'd get really nervous. I'm like, why is this still happening? And it wasn't until this year I started doing some work with a um, more of a somatic body therapist with trauma. And of all things, I went back to a memory in fourth grade feeling humiliated by a teacher. And I'm like, that was nowhere in my present, I don't know, but my whole life, there was this physical reaction that would come up. But if you were in my classes, you'd know I was always the first to talk because it was kind of my coping mechanism to move past the fear. That was my, my strategy to deal with what was uncomfortable inside. So you, you may have things from as far back as that, or it might be recent. Um, but it's, it's noticing in your body when, when you are having a tough time, what she calls regulating, I call getting back into your window of tolerance. Um, that's usually when, if that's tough or you're literally feeling like you're having a heart attack or you're feeling like you can't breathe or you're noticing you can't sleep. Um, if you're sleeping less than you know four to six hours a night, 
Um, and not because you're on call and someone's being mean and making you stay late. Not because but like, you have a bunch of kids. Yeah, or a right? bunch of kids, but because <laughs> you really just, um, a lot of us, it'll show up in that way. So um, it's okay, like he said, to be scared. It's a normal thing, but it's how do you, can you regulate yourself or does it help when you're with someone else to co-regulate? Sometimes that's why people come see us because we heal in connection with each other too. And a lot of us don't know. That's been my experience working with professionals with anxiety. Um, it can be a wonderful driver. It, I read a study about medical students. Two thirds would, like they did a small cohort, but it, two thirds of that cohort were clinically anxious. Sure. Um, there's a reason they're <laughs> so motivated to do very, very well. They really um, bring it and channel that energy. So I've seen that in my. It's thoughts. not a good or bad. It's just kind of how are you fun? How well are you functioning? I think is the biggest question. Yeah, yeah. So would it be safe to say when it's situational, like you mentioned, a tiger? If a tiger comes, obviously I'm going to go into fight or flight mode. But the problem comes when I'm on fight or flight mode every day for a long period of time. Yeah, you're standing and you're getting out of class and the guy you like and you're hoping to talk to him and then you feel devastated when he doesn't come over and you're, or yeah, you're getting really anxious about going and talking to him. <laughs> and you're not just nervous, you're like petrified, frozen. <laughs> you're back in that horrible moment of that breakup and you can't function. It, it, it's like I'm being a little dramatic, but... No, it's very realistic. It's <laughs> <laughs> so Cheryl shared her one, two, three. I'll share um, a lot of what I've started to recognize, a lot of, um, a lot of us that get really anxious that go into freeze mode, um, something simple you can do for yourself when you feel your body shutting down or freezing is just move to the side to side and move your eyeballs if you can only do that and start kind of using your body to work with you to calm, help bring your mind back online, back into your window. Thank you, that was so helpful. So since we're talking about big words, why don't we just go to the next big word and we talk about depression. That was another one that came up in the poll. Mm. So what are signs and symptoms of depression? I could read them to you from the DSM if you'd like. <laughs> so many people, uh, so many people go through life saying, I'm so depressed, mm -hmm. I'm so depressed. Um, they might not even know there's a diagnosis such as dysthymia, mm -hmm. uh, which is a mild depression, which often comes from childhood trauma um, or something early in life, and it's diffused to where it's not like you can say, well, it was because my check banks bounced yesterday. Oh, wait a minute, you don't know about checks. You're into like PayPal and Venmo and <laughs> you know, stuff that just curls my hair. But... <laughs> but um, what we need to do as professionals, because we want to take a person's distress obviously very seriously, but we need to decide if your distress, mm -hmm. when you come to us, is such that you're a danger to yourself or others. And I don't mean you're going to go, you know, buy a gun, um, but that you are so depressed, literally, clinically, that you aren't going to go to class and you'll fail and you'll you know, be removed from your program, or your relationships are such that people are, are worried about you uh, in terms of your well-being. And so when you look at depression, you have to figure out how, um, how low is your mood? How long, has, how long have you been crying? Or how, about, how long have you been not eating? How long have you been um, not going to class? We, we need to look at the intensity and the duration of the behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, everything comes down to your behaviors. Uh, your thoughts are acted out in your behaviors. And you may be losing weight and not trying to. And we would we would be concerned about that. When we look at the stress that you're under that may lead to anxiety or depression, you stop and think of distress in, in two categories. There's what Hans Selye used to say was as you stress, which is 
a wedding, a graduation, a wonderful family event, or distress, which is something that is breaking your soul. And without any stress, you'd be dead. Your heart would, be, it would cease to beat. Mm. You wouldn't study for an exam. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't do anything. You'd just be sitting around with your guitar on a rock <laughs> by the water and not being very productive. <laughs> With your um, guitar. Unless you don't play guitar, then you're not doing... <laughs> then you just have to sing miserably to yourself. <laughs> we laugh, but I... <laughs> Did you want to say something? Um, I shared with you this idea of a window of tolerance. So if, if our body and our inner response shoots us up and we get hypervigilant, most anxiety tends to feel really intense and you're really inert. There's all this energy that shoots through. Um, depression is when we fall below our window of tolerance. It's like we go into a submit. I had a woman today, fine, just whatever. I mean, it's a, it's a tough case and she's very discouraged with her husband and um, she'll just, okay, I'm just not gonna say, why would I say anything? Mm. He's not gonna listen. There's an experience of, of feeling really disconnected. This has kind of become my, there's a great book by Johan Hari about um, looking at connection and disconnection and depression in that lens across cultures. And that's really opened my eyes to go, yeah, you know, where are you on this continuum of humanity and our normal experience of sadness, you know, frustration and disconnect? Um, or are you way over here, like that beautiful song she sang um, about a tough moment during COVID, who, I'm not gonna call you. Depression has us retract and contract and pull inward usually. And it can come with all sorts of wonderful challenges like shame or, you know, feeling sad, but. The two major s signals would be hopelessness yeah. and helplessness. Mm. Right. Hopelessness and helplessness. Um, if you look at the clinical definition, which if you go and your bill insurance is going to be billed, they're going to be looking at specifics. Yep. Feeling sad or having a depressed mood. And the next one is significant. Losing pleasure in things that used to bring you pleasure. Activities you once enjoyed and you don't enjoy them anymore. People call you to go out with them. You don't accept or you don't want to accept. Um, weight loss or gain when you aren't trying to lose or gain. There aren't mm -hmm. too many here who are trying to gain. Um, trouble sleeping, as you said. Loss of energy or fatigue. You might not realize you are depressed, but you have no energy or low energy, uh, which is uncharacteristic. Um, purposelessness and inability to, to sit still. Um, and certainly a person experiencing clinical depression uh, doesn't experience all of these, but we would look clinically at how many of these and how severe, um, feeling worthless or guilty, difficulty concentrating, and of course the most extreme, thoughts of death or suicide. Hmm. You said something about time. Um, Let's say I have a friend, I've noticed she's not coming out of her room, she's feeling hopeless, she's crying a lot, and it's been three weeks. Should I worry about it, or when do I start worrying about it? Three weeks is a pretty, uh, pretty uh, good uh, indicator. Mm -hmm. If it's a week, if it's 10 days, maybe she failed an exam, went through a relationship breakup, it might be normal grief. Mm -hmm. And of course, normal grief can go well beyond three weeks. Um, but the people closest to the roommate or the, you know, significant other or the child or parent um, are pretty good at also assessing how long seems too long mm -hmm. for this for this hopelessness and helplessness and lack of connection. So context is important. The context, yes. I think it's also important, no matter whether if you're. Intuitive, if your intuition is saying, this is really off, something's not okay with my friend mm -hmm. or whatever, um, one thing I've learned and encourage um, people to do is the same thing that I do when I'm working with someone, and that is ask them, like, should I 
be worried. Like, are you ever feeling like you want to hurt yourself? Or does it ever get so dark that you just want to end your life? Is it really that? Is it ever? It's a lot of times we're afraid to ask. It's, it's like when they say don't talk about sex because kids will want to have more sex. It's like if you ask them if they're suicidal that they're going to want to do it. Mm. No, it's actually incredibly freeing mm -hmm. um, if someone's feeling that way to know you care, um, to feel like someone was um, brave enough mm -hmm. to, to open that con that conversation and it doesn't mean you need to do any extensive work with them mm -hmm. but it's just that if you're brave enough to ask it helps people go wow you you might be big enough to hold some of these intense feelings that I don't even trust myself with right now mm -hmm. so in the case that that's the scenario we do see some suicidal ideation there what would we do as a friend what's um, our role, what could we do to help them? Mm. We don't know much about mental health, so we're just there. <laughs> you wanna say something? Sure. Yeah, I think often um, we feel like we have to do something, um, but the simple answer is comfort. And um, I feel like we feel like, yeah, I gotta help that person and give some advice. Fix and it. Fix it. Um, but often when someone's struggling with depression, anxiety or anything, mental health, often they're all they're looking for is comfort. And so one of the things as therapists or as a coach, one thing, we, number one thing we learn is to listen um, and to be aware of what they're going through. And so I think mm -hmm. that's very important to figure out what's going on, what exactly is their situation and understand them. Mm -hmm. um, and often that is a good start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Cheryl mentioned earlier behaviors. What are you noticing? Just simply reflecting back, hey, I'm noticing you're not going to class. This is like the fifth day in a row. What's going on? Or, you know, um, that string image was really powerful in their skit, too, of working together. So maybe, for example, on this campus, you guys have um, free resources available for counseling. So you can encourage them you can be there with them. And I always, you know, when I was in school here, um, it, you do, you, you find your friends or yourself in a tough time. And, um, but I think it's important too, to not hesitate to, if, if they're really struggling, say, hey, we can go together. Doesn't mean I'm gonna sit with you, but it means I might take you there. A lot of faculty will walk students to us um, yeah. on campuses like this. You can encourage them to talk with other people they feel comfortable with. Yeah. But I think, I think the, hard, the hard thing is, is that everyone feels distressed at some point. And so um, really being brave enough to ask and check in, mm -hmm. sometimes that's all they needed was like, wow, thank you. I Someone felt really noticed. alone. Yeah. Not so much anymore. Right, yeah. Um, I want to keep asking questions, but I also want to give the opportunity to Praxis to ask any questions or comments that they may have as we're speaking. I think we have two mics, so if any of you have any questions, you can raise your hand and they will bring the mic to you. Um, while they think about their questions, um, you know, sometimes, I've heard people here in church say they come with all these burdens, with all these struggles, sometimes like mental health issues, and the church is easy to point them to scripture, to prayer, and then that's it. Um, and so where, where do we draw the line? You know, that's awesome. Like we obviously need spiritual support. But where does spiritual support maybe go into spiritual abuse or neglect? Like, when do we know that person needs professional helps, help besides just prayer and scripture? Sure, yeah. Um, I think often, yeah, we say like, oh, you need to pray more, you need to have more faith. And, you know, that's not kind of what they're looking for. And it's, I do want to go back to what I said earlier. You know, often um, 
we go into the advice mode. I, I don't know if you guys had experience, but if you go out and giving Bible studies and things like that, you feel like, oh, I got to teach. I got to teach. I got to teach this person. Um, and something that, you know, I've learned in my, you know, relationship with my fiance, Amber, um, is, you know, um, and we've been practicing this, and I think it's really good, is sometimes in a relationship, you come to someone because you're struggling with something at a bad day, and the other partner is straight going to, I'm going to give advice kind of thing. Mm. But all that partner is looking for is comfort. Mm. And so some of the things that we've been practicing is uh, we ask the question, you know, are you looking for comfort or advice? Mm. And I think that's a you know, great thing to kind of consider. Um, and as Christians, when people come in, we kind of go straight into, oh, we got to help them with their sins or mm. we got to help them with their you know, their struggles with their relationship with God and mm -hmm. things like that. But, you know, I, I, I remind myself that verse in Mark chapter 8 where it says, out of your heart uh, proceed this uh, blasphemy, adultery, and all those things. Mm -hmm. So sin is actually a surface problem, but there's something deeper, mm. and it's from your heart. You know, from your heart, it comes out these problems. And so I think the first thing is comfort. Show them that um, there is Christ that could give you that comfort. Um, but how can we do that first is by understanding them, where they're coming from, what have they been going through, and just listening to them. And um, But when we go straight to just, you know, telling them this is how it is and this and that, I feel like that's when it becomes, like, overwhelming for them. Yeah. And they get it's confused. It's like the best way to know what they need is asking them, what do you need? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, and a lot of times people don't know what they need. Mm. And they're really... Um, just like we all have different giftings, some play the guitar, some more backstage support or whatnot. Um, I'm starting to realize, especially working with couples, that we're all equipped differently. And I've learned to think of our relationships as growing, just like you had developmental milestones as a kid. Couples have developmental milestones that they need to learn how to resolve conflict, how to be back to independent and freed up again and together at the same time and how to do that well. And so when I think about when people come, a lot of times they're probably overwhelmed has been my experience. They feel under-equipped. Mm. And so it might be easier to say, well, instead of saying, dang, that's rough, like, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> You know, you you say something like, well, I'll pray for you. I really hope it works out mm. or something. And we don't realize the impact. I've even said that at times where or maybe I didn't want to talk with it. Like that was my way of setting a boundary. <laughs> I don't want to do this at church, too. So, um, you know, it's it's sometimes I think it's having grace as well for um, the ones who, and, and I've started to learn, they just may not be equipped yet. And they mm. may or may not be present to the fact that they're equipped. Mm. A lot of times spiritual leaders don't see how under-equipped they are to deal with certain emotional reactions. Yeah. And um, something as simple as compassion or, or what I call containment, it's like mm -hmm. by reflecting back to someone what you just heard, they hear themselves in a new way, mm -hmm. and it's no longer a burden they carry alone. Yeah. So, um, and for the ones I know, I've, there were years I didn't want to say anything because I was afraid of how it would impact my standing or how I'd be perceived in this community I treasure so much. Um, mistakes I've made, things I didn't want to talk about. And if I would bring that forward, it was such a vulnerable place to share and to be told. It would be like my 92-year-old grandfather telling me I should be in the Adventist church, but he never asked me to hang out or connect. Mm. And it's like, buddy, I, I see your passion, but I don't feel your heart or your connection. Mm. And I, I think that is one of the saddest missed opportunities in church communities is... Um, you know, so be brave enough to say, I really don't know what to do with this. This is a big one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or um, I'm just so glad you told me. Wow, that took a lot of courage. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I know we have two questions. Yes, we are a little short in time. So if you guys um, can pass the mics. Oh, you have it. Great. 
Check. All right. Um, very quick. Try to man on the end. <laughs> try to put this in a really compact question. The concept of mental health in 2021, when it comes to social media. How <laughs> yes. Compact, yeah. Mm. And the concept of anxiety um, yeah. amongst the youth. I still consider myself youth. I'm in my late 20s, but imagine, uh, like, I can imagine a world that I grew up playing outside, and I didn't get into social media until starting college. So I cannot, and, and social media has a grip on me, and I cannot imagine my little sisters who have who were born at the age of two, they know how to swipe. So I can't imagine the, uh, the mental health that, that comes with that and my little sister seeing that her friends left her on scene and that gives her anxiety and she's 10 years old. So how do you navigate that, um, that aspect of mental health nowadays with the young people especially? Thank you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one one of the most humbling experiences is to to ask to be asked to come and sit here up here <laughs> because we don't know all these things. And you know, I fantasize that uh, I would restrict the media, but it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. And dealing, I think, with a child from a young age much younger than 10, but if starting at 10, fine, with one's well-being, how to take care of oneself, and how to take care of one's heart, and understanding that you are more than a neglected post or you know a hurtful comment, um, because these young people, you as well, because I'm 74, you have stressors and things in your lives that I never experienced. You know, my generation, I mean, if you didn't go to college and you were a guy, you'd be sent to war. That, that was pretty significant. But with social media, I just think it's working with a child's well-being within that family context, not to isolate them from, from toughness, but to help them learn to love themselves and to surround themselves with people who who value who they are mm -hmm. and set boundaries you know 10 is not too young to learn how to set boundaries but it's an excruciating a difficult thing one of my students in our advanced human growth and development class years ago said to the class you know my daughter won't have a a, a, a cell phone until she's 10 because she, she said to her mother when she was like seven, when can I have a phone? And she said, I didn't know what to say because she just threw that question. I said, when you're 10. And, <laughs> and she just made that up. But you have an eight-year-old. High school. He's not getting a phone till high school. I made okay. that decision recently. <laughs> yeah, um, right. He, he will literally, my, yeah, my son will, how, how was your day? <laughs> right. <laughs> what? Am I getting liked or disliked on in real life now? And so it's been fascinating watching my three-year-old learn how to, mommy, I want to take a selfie on myself. And it's like, no. <laughs> um, so one of the quick couple of key things is that um, nothing replaces, I mean, like I, I have a consult group. We meet once a week online and we just, one came down from up north. And it was bizarre. I was like, I, hi, can I touch you? You're here. <laughs> like it just, it was this amazing feeling we forget. And I think that's the most important yeah. thing is checking yourself, check your phone. How much are you on your phone? How often are you doing that? Maybe you're sensing an invitation to get off it. I've been off of Facebook and Instagram. It's been the most wonderful thing ever because, um, and I never thought I would be, I'm a very extroverted person, but it was a little too much. And it's really tempting to fall into comparing ourselves. Yeah. All of those old childhood fears and voices of separation that pull us away from each other. So my sense with a kid, like if they're telling you this happened or that happened online, 
trust that it's for them no different than if it happened in person. Just like real anxiety, real threat versus perceived threat mm. lands in the body the same way. Mm -hmm. And so the more you talk with them, and one of the most crazy studies I heard in grad school was that like, it was this critique on who are we, the new generation of therapists coming up? We're on our phones. They did a study, and on average, we could only hold focus for about seven minutes. And I was like, wow, what does that say about the people here trying to support and really be empathetically present for yeah. 50 minutes? And um, we have, it's a skill. So I think learning to develop that skill and teaching kids to give them opportunities to play, to be bored, to be with each other, um, play dates, but not being afraid to talk about it with them too. Like, wow, that must really hurt. And ask her other questions. Who, who else feels a little left out at school? Are you the only one? Do you think maybe there's someone that would like to connect with you? You know, mm -hmm. and what could you do? And you can go back in. Yeah. Shion, you had something to say. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but I think it comes down to self-worth. Yeah. And a lot of times we uh, mm -hmm. see these clients or we're talking to people, and I, rather it's anxiety, depression, whatever it is, bipolar, it's always coming down to self-worth. Yeah. And that starts from childhood, you know, learning about what is my value based on, you mm. know, where is my worth? And obviously yeah. for us is God, right? Yeah. Christ died for us on the cross and our he bought us for our price, you know, and so our value is with Christ. Yeah. And I think when we teach that to kids, that's the most healthiest thing from early on. And that helps us I think that'll help with the social media part because mm. again, like was mentioned, social media a lot has to do with comparison and when I see kids um, in therapies and, um, and stuff they usually have that problem with comparison mm -hmm. you know I'm not good as my sister even you know mm -hmm. or I'm not good as my friend or you know and they always talk about oh, I'm not good as this person on this Instagram and so <laughs> so you tell them I felt like that too I was super nervous in high school or in junior high and blah 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 mm. you were nervous too yeah, I totally made f huge mistakes, and this is what I learned. And you know, it helps That's them it. bridge back to you and connect with you. No. And now we're going to publicize your trouble all over the internet. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so true. We're all relational beings, so. Um, social media is just like a way to get more messages from everywhere. So our filter has definitely to be thicker <laughs> and we have oh, time for only one more person i think someone sorry guys yes cha cha um, i can help with my favorite topic so thank you so much for doing this um i've noticed that like this generation has done a really good job of like building awareness for mental health and um unfortunately i think the problem is that like we're like oh yeah mental health super great therapy awesome not for me though and we have this idea like therapy is only for like severe mental like people who are hearing things or seeing things and it should be something as simple as like man I just had a rough breakup like mm -hmm. I need some support um, mm -hmm. so what tips do you guys have for like not just awareness for mental health but like advocacy for mental health mm -hmm. um, especially when it comes like to the church Christ didn't leave this earth without a human presence he didn't just say I'm giving you the Holy Spirit good luck you know <laughs> um, he left amen he, he left 11 faithful, mostly faithful disciples. And he told them, <laughs> well, one not so much, one not at all, another one denied him, but regretted it. But, but you know, when I've had young people or their parents who've been resistant to go to a mental health professional, I have used that illustration because I truly believe, you know, Christ left disciples on this earth to to heal and to feed and to teach and to comfort and to be with us. We are um, relational beings. And it, it isn't a sign of strength or spiritual strength um, to, to refuse to seek help. It's not a sign of spiritual weakness that we need comfort. And I mean, I'll just use my granddaughter as an example. When she had some rough spots in college, you know, 
I made sure that I had touch points with her. I would either go there every Friday when I could, you know, which was every Friday for about two months because mm -hmm. I didn't teach a class on Friday. I drove to Santa Barbara to be with her because she needed somebody. We just went to eat. We, we would go to a movie. We would shop. We would do mm -hmm. things. But I was with her. I didn't lecture her about what she was struggling with or how her classes were. I just want to know I would be with her. You can do that with your little sister when mm. you can and be with her. When someone is depressed and they need something, you can say, I'll call you on Tuesdays at 4, you know, or I'll check with you. And it gives them something to look forward to. You can't be with a mental health professional all the time or always get somebody to go to someone. But you can hold their hand in, in small ways that they can look forward to. They, and and in, with mental health, you, so you're there 45 minutes a week, 50 minutes a week. One of, my, one of my interns said to me, I feel so helpless. I'm working with a seventh grader whose mother is an alcoholic. He goes home to hell after school every day, and I only see him once a week. And I said, that's true. But he can think about what you talk about. He can think about you, you know. You and the concepts you teach him can be with him all the time, and he can see comfort through those. So I think encouraging people with the normalcy of the American system of seeking guidance when you need it. Um, you can't make people go, but you can encourage them. You can go yourselves. Mm. I go. I do it every every other right now, every other week. Um, I did. Th this year, I... Uh, I embarked on weekly hour and a half therapy with my mom in practice together and in our field and how to break through barriers and where we would stop and get pissed with each other and how to resolve that. Um, it was it's been an incredibly healing and forwarding life experience. And um, there was a little, there were tiffs here and there, but it wasn't like we were super out of sorts. And so, um, something I, I'm more open to it. If you know you grew up with a mom and my dad's a therapist, if everyone's a therapist or a psychiatrist, it's going to be easy to want to go. And something I've started to recognize from an attachment lens, um, in addition to what I call self worth, differentiation, autonomy, and that core need to feel seen, heard, respected, like you matter. There's also a hardcore need for connection, safety, and belonging. And so if, for example, um, a safely, securely attached person, which is about 30% of Americans, yeah. um, they will tell you most of the time they only feel safe and secure about 33% of the time. 33% of the time they're in dis distress or rupture of relationships because life is tough. And that's like all of us, right? The key distinction is the last 33%, um, percent, they are in repair. They're focused on how to not fix it, but how to grow, learn, and make this better. So my, what I advocate for with people is if you're sensing internally, because nowadays I told Cheryl, I go to things all the time. I am a big consumer and giver in the field. And coaching feels a lot like therapy, feels a lot like church, feels a lot like everything I go to. It's hard to tell the difference sometimes as the person sitting there. Um, and um, whether you feel you would do better in one or the other environment, it doesn't matter. Do you want to grow? Do you want to get to know your blind spots? Um, a human healthy brain is designed to both function with our left brain thoughts and um, being able to be present and feeling. And I get a lot of clients coming in that have a hard time connecting or accessing their feelings or understanding why that's even useful or valuable. But if, if we don't learn how to partner and hold all of it, how to actually be with yourself, then I'll tell you, you'll get into a relationship and they'll be the perfect mirror for you. Mm. And you'll start to realize where your blind spot, or they'll see it or they'll show you as will you show them. Your children will reveal you all of your shortcomings as a human being as mm. they also reflect how amazing you are. Um, and so it's not that you have to be in distress. I really encourage you, if you've even been thinking about it, 
Or here's the hard truth. If people you care about are saying, you're really hard to connect with, maybe that's a signal. Take the cue. Say, OK, maybe I get to get curious and look for something that would be a good first step that I can grow and developmentally build my skill set. Um, especially like if you love your partner and they're telling you they don't connect with you or they don't feel safe with you or they don't feel like you care and you're over here going, I totally care about you, I totally adore you, mm -hmm. then um, do some work. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> I don't know, I don't know. It's just, um, there's no one way to, I think the best way to advocate is be willing to be um, vulnerable. vulnerable yourself. I let people yeah. know all the time. I don't just provide therapy, I use it because yeah. it works. So. But there's a stigma to it. And when I was in therapy, I didn't want anybody to see my car parked out front. Mm -hmm. I would park out back. And I thought, if you, a mental health professional, don't even want anybody to know you're in therapy. And I didn't. I didn't tell mm -hmm. anybody. My friends never knew. Mm -hmm. I was too proud. Um, that was then, and this is now. And mm -hmm. now I'm announcing it in front of how many people. <laughs> but, you know, it's hard to, to, to uh, because there's such a stigma to it. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, we always think like we got to get counseled or we got, and I think that's very important too, but there's also something about practical things like lifestyle. And I really, that's why I like the ministry F5 challenge because we promote outdoors, challenge yourself, try new things. I do surf events, rock climbing events, and I um, invite people, people that come and they've never surfed before and they try something new. And trying those things, it really helps with something called neuroplasticity, right? It helps your brain to grow, keep, and some of the five, there's five key things that one researcher found that um, through all things studying with rats, uh, discovered that there's five key things in neuroplasticity, which is uh, trying new things, challenging yourself, diet, and one of the things was fitness, actually, and the last thing was love. And so those five aspects are so important. Those are things that you experience in life. And sometimes that's why um, in our ministry, we invite people to come. And we have all these different types of people. I mean, some of our events, we have like up to 300 people come, all different types of people from different places all around the world sometimes. And some of these people do have mental health. But when they come to our event, experience the outdoors, we have events in um, uh, Zion National Park, Yosemite, uh, we've done in even Joshua Tree and everywhere. And when these people come, they re really feel energized and excited about life. And something about just what God has given to us, the outdoors, does actually do something to our brain. Oh, yeah. And our brain is already created. God made our brain so special that it's already in your brain that you're able to think positively, be able to have a good mood. And so just for us is to help people to be in that environment. Yeah. You know, the, the one of the five things I mentioned is love. Yeah. You know, being in an environment of friends, community. You know, I, um, some of you guys um, have a group of friends here that you could just invite people to your mm -hmm. friend and just to enjoy that community. So I feel, I feel like environment and all that is really important. Yeah. One well, just one thought about that, the neuroplasticity. We have all these childhood or young adult experiences, and when you challenge yourself to go out, I call it taking a bold move. Even if it's for you small, but it feels like a stretch, you just create it if you're what wires together, or fires together, wires together. So if you've got this kind of view of yourself that you aren't sure you can handle it, and your brain naturally goes down that route, you just took a step out, you risked, and you create a whole new reference point for yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, you, your brain will start, it's like you took an exit off that freeway, and you went, oh, I can do this. Mm -hmm. I might try that again, again, you know? It's, it, and it becomes so like, um, I told you about how my heart's in my throat usually with public speaking, and my, my, my heart's down here somewhere right now. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's calmed down and it's moved because I've done it enough Mm. now and I have enough reference points to go oh it's okay even if I blow it or I say something I really if I have a vulnerability hangover after this <laughs> I will still be like okay I can make it through I made it through that other one so you start to realize why not let's go 
Try one tiny thing. Well, thank you for trying tonight. <laughs> we really appreciate, I really, really appreciate you guys tonight. Um, we obviously have to do this part two. <laughs> but as the band comes up, um, I do want to leave you guys with some resources. Um, they will be in the screen behind me. Um, I just want to leave you with the NAMI helpline. NAMI is the National Alliance Mental of mental illness, um, you can go to their website. They have so many resources, support groups, education. Um, and then the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is there. The National Sexual Assault Hotline is there. You don't have to be in a crisis, but maybe you know someone. You can also call and ask how you can help this person. Um, and finally, our mental health support group that we're starting is under live groups. Actually, Shion and I are, are co-leaders with Derek. Mm -hmm. um, so we're just trying to create a safe space for people to share their, their stories and support each other through our mental health journey. So if that's something you're interested in, we have a few spots left and you can sign up in the Praxis Instagram bio link. But thank you again. Uh, let's do this again. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.